Welcome to Art Conversations, and I am your host, Lisa Jane Irvine. As a practicing visual artist, I've had the opportunity to meet many interesting individuals along the way. Every path I've ventured down has provided me with a greater knowledge in the arts, as well as a vast array of experiences that have helped to shape my practice both in and out of the studio. I encourage you to grab a cup of tea or even a coffee and settle in as we begin my conversations with my guests who are working, practicing, exploring, even playing in the arts. is an arts administrator, curator, educator, and writer with a history of extensive involvement on both local and international cultural fronts. Currently working between its Toronto and Kinnite, formerly Cape Dorset, Nunavut offices, he leads the national and international operations of the West Baffin Eskimo Cooperative and its not-for-profit arm of the Kinnite Arts Foundation. In this capacity, he is recognized specialist in the arts affecting cultural producers in the Canadian Arctic and has provided expert witness testimony to both the Senate and the House of Commons. In addition to the West Baffin Eskimo Cooperative, William is a curator of special projects with Urban Space Property Group, a development responsible for the iconic 401 Richmond Street Cultural Complex located in Toronto's downtown core. Immediately prior to these positions, Huffman was the executive director at Inuit Art Foundation and publisher of Inuit Art Quarterly. William has worked with several other visual arts organizations, including Blackwood Gallery, Arts Toronto, the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, A-Space Gallery, Canadian Art Foundation, and Art Gallery of Sudbury. He was Associate Director of Toronto Arts Council and Toronto Arts Foundation and Coordinator of the Audience and Market Development Office at Canada Council for the Arts in Ottawa. He is a regular lecturer with the University of Toronto, Toronto Arts, Toronto School of Arts, Toronto Public Library System, and Visual Arts Mississauga. He has also served as a regular on-air national arts correspondent with CTV News Channel. At this time, please welcome William Huffman to the podcast. Well, it's nice to be chatting with you today, William. Well, thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here. And, and for that generous uh, introduction, thank you for that. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. I thought maybe we could start with you telling us a little bit about the West Baffin Eskimo Cooperative and your involvement with it. Absolutely. Um, The West Baffin Eskimo Cooperative, or the WBEC, as we call it internally, we've been around since the late 50s. We celebrated our 60th anniversary a little while ago. And to give you a sense of what the organization was all about, in the early days, there was a need to create economy in the Arctic. At that point, the Inuit population had been relocated from their nomadic kind of existence to settlements, so tiny places in and around the Canadian Arctic, across the Canadian Arctic. And one of those places was Cape Dorset, now known as Kinite. It's gone back to its original Inuktitut name. And if you can imagine, in the exploration of what kind of economy could be built in the North, it was determined that visual arts, inexplicably visual arts, and that has been the biggest, the biggest economy in Kenite since the very beginning. So the idea was that the Canadian government set up a studio complex, uh, very rudimentary at the time. You can imagine building an art studio, a print shop in the Canadian Arctic in the 50s would be a monumental task. Even today, our operations are still complex and expensive. 
expensive because of where they're located and the challenges of being in the north. The idea is that artists would make drawings and artists would then work with a printmaker to make those drawings into prints. And every year since the founding of the of the organization, the West Bath Festival Cooperative, in 1959, we've produced a compendium of prints that's released in the fall internationally all on the same day. That's our biggest and most visible activity. On the other hand, you know, again, I mentioned that artists make drawings and certainly those drawings have become very popular over the last couple of decades and have found their way into collections all over the world. And in addition to that, there's also a sculpture program. And so our artists are also carving sculpture out of locally quarried stone. And those have become very, very popular over the years. I mean, the idea of creating this in the North, the idea of being able to make these kinds of really precious, amazing, and very skillful objects in the Canadian Arctic is really what what's contributed to the popularity and the importance of this work. You might imagine that someone collecting this in Asia or somebody collecting this in Eastern Europe, it's extremely exotic because it comes from this place called the Canadian Arctic. On the other hand, what it's also done over the years has contributed to a very, very international profile and a, a Canadian aesthetic, a quintessentially Canadian aesthetic. Now, when I say that we have a studio in the north, we it, it provides space. All of the equipment that artists and printmakers and sculptors need and all of the materials are supplied free of charge. So in addition to providing with the means, the space, and sometimes professional development in order to, to build their career. We also provide the marketing and we send these things out into the world. Our offices are split between Cape Dorset, Kenite, and Toronto, where I'm mostly located. The Toronto offices are really our marketing arms. So it's a holding place for all of the works that are created in the North, sent down to us, and then we find places in the world to send that work. I hope that gives you a little bit of a meandering, but uh, you know, high-level overview of what we do. Yeah, that's great. It really does give a sense. And I think I have quite a few questions coming out of your introduction. To start, you mentioned that there's a collection that comes out every fall. So how many prints generally are released each year? Mm, that's a good question. And since the beginning, it's varied dramatically. I mean, in the early days, when it, when there was a frenzy around this work, you can imagine we would produce, you know, upwards of 60, 70 prints in the collection. And some of the prints were actually on fabric. I mean, it was a very short-lived program, but, but also just shows the diversity and ingenuity that we would have a screen printing program that would create these very special yardage fabrics in the, in the Canadian Arctic. And so, yeah, we'd have probably, you know, 70 in the early days, and we've clawed it back a little bit, certainly because the market has cooled down as, as it does. You know, things in the beginning are, are very, very popular. And then suddenly every museum has got an allocation of their art from Kinites. So the popularity, of course, is still there because people do understand the importance of the work, but not necessarily from the collector point of view. So yeah, this, I would say our upcoming collection maybe has about 25, mm -hmm. 30 works. And that one will be released in October of this year. And if people are interested in them, what's the best way that they can become a collector or get pieces from your collection? And what we do, I mean, we don't work generally directly with the buying public. We work with commercial galleries internationally, and they access the final end user, let's say, the final destination for the object in a, in a private collection. But on the other hand, I mean, please, certainly if anybody's interested, you can always supply my contact information and we can direct you to, to where you might find the stuff. Okay, great. And how many artists generally are working in the studios? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the newer studio, because I know they have mm -hmm. a new facility. 
Indeed. If you saw, I mean, and, and certainly these things that exist online, if you saw images of the very early, as I mentioned, the rudimentary studios, they were essentially small boxes, you know, just to protect people from the, the weather, you know, very little kind of by way of luxury. And the offices that I work in when I first started this job about six years ago, they were certainly an upgrade, but definitely functional and, and still rudimentary. The studios we have now in a place called the Konoyoak Cultural Center, and it's named for uh, Konoyoak Ashavak, which is arguably the most important Inuit artist, probably one of the most important contemporary Canadian artists, for that matter. So the studios are located there. There's an exhibition space. There is a, a meeting and gathering space for the community. Our central offices, head offices are located there and the studios. It's about a 10,000 square foot facility in size in total, which is quite huge and very ambitious for the Arctic. One of the, the things that I found re really remarkable and becoming very used to the way that, that architecture kind of functions in the North, again, it's very utilitarian. Utilitarian, you know, small windows, you know, metal cladding, very kind of ordinary in a way. But that's because, of course, the demands of building the Arctic. The cultural center where our offices are, it's this bright blue building on the top of one of the higher hills in town. And the interior is um I mean, these wonderful, wonderful, really warm wood accents that you find all over the place in the building. And of course, the reason that's remarkable is that there is no wood beyond the tree line in the Canadian Arctic. So this stuff all has to be brought in. So again, expensive, but important in order to create a, a architecturally welcoming space and lots of windows. One of the interesting things is that artists would always say to me that they wanted lots of windows because when mm -hmm. they look out onto the surrounding landscape, they see their community. They see why they're making art and, and they feel how important art is being over the history of this of this community and its existence. So it's a really remarkable piece of architecture. Now, also, that allowed for us to increase the quality of the equipment that artists have access to. So our printing presses got bigger and they got more sophisticated. We now have other techniques that are being introduced to the um, repertoire of our artists because we can do that now. And so, it, you know, it, it's really a, a place where, you know, I'm always astonished when I when I visit and I visit quite frequently, not these days with our current situation. But, you know, it, it, it's remarkable to see all of these artists in the drawing studio making these drawings, and they can make drawings on a really big scale because they have the space, something that you couldn't do at home or in our previous studio iteration, but also just this hive of activity in the printmaking uh, facility where we do etching, we do stone cut, and we do lithography. Oh, and wow. stone cut, yeah, stone cut is very similar to people say what's stone cut. It's very similar to wood cut or uh, a lino cut, but it's made with stone. And you can imagine how arduous that process can be. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you know, it, it's really incredible. And at any given time, we've got about 125 artists that we work with in the in the community. And that doesn't mean that they're all in the studios all at the same time. And many of them are sculptors and the sculptors do work at home and come to us with their sculpture for either, you know, advice on how to finish it or, you know, of course, to sell it to us so that we can then resell it through one of our gallery partners. But it's a really remarkable space and does um, provide a livelihood for, again, 125 artists in the community, which is kind of remarkable for a place that is in total 1,400 residents. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a very vibrant community. It sounds like they're very engaged in what they're doing. Mm, very much so, very much. I'm always surprised and reminded when I see the artists, the volume of artists that we work with and the kind of work that comes out of this community on an ongoing basis. Again, we've been doing this for 60 plus years and being able to sustain careers for, for that period of time. So it's generation after generation we work with. So you mentioned that you've been there a couple of times. Maybe you could describe to people who haven't been to Cape Dorset area what it's like. 
Well, I mean, you can imagine it is the Canadian Arctic. So in, in April, right through sometimes till June, I mean, there's still snow on the ground. And even well into the summer months, you can see there's a, a typical place on a mountain that doesn't get any sun and the snow just stays there the entire year round. So it doesn't get very warm. I mean, it's quite a beautiful place. And so I always enjoy my time up there because, again, you are in a place that is so exotic and foreign. And even though I've been there, actually, I can't even tell you, Lisa, how many times I've been up there now over the last six years. I'm just going up quite regularly. But that trip is, I wouldn't say it's arduous. I think that, you know, it's three planes. So I go from Toronto to Ottawa, Ottawa to Iqaluit, which is the capital of the territory Nunavut, and then from Iqaluit to to Kinite. Now, the interesting thing is it's about a half a day's journey, which is not remarkable. I mean, Europe is a longer period of time the, the difficulty, though, is everything, your plane gets smaller at each of your stops. So by the time you get onto the plane that goes to Kinite, it's a fairly tiny, tiny plane. Not a, not an otter, but one of those kind of small double uh, propeller planes. And everything can affect this, whether it's a mechanical, whether it's fog, whether it's wind, whether it's a blizzard, you know. So I think in the time that I've been going up there, I've really become a lot more patient as a person because, you know, the number of times it's like we all get to the airport and then we deplane and we have to to our hotel and wait the next day to see if the fog has lifted or, you know, so in addition to it being, you know, of course, something that I have to deal with when I'm traveling up there and, you know, knowing that I need to add a couple of days on either end of my, of my trip, you can imagine also when we're shipping supplies up there or we're shipping artwork down, the kind of attention to detail in that scheduling that we need to, we need to have because, I mean, anything can happen. We've had artwork, you know, destined for, you know, the Sydney Biennial or Sao Paulo Biennial or, you know, some music museum in Europe. And we've had to make concessions and figure out a way, like alternative routes to get these things out there because to get to their destinations, because just sometimes it's arduous to to move things out of the Arctic. What's the artist's reaction to people coming in and and working with you? It's a 60-year relationship, so that's incredible. Do they get to come down here? That's a very good question, actually. And and I would say it goes both ways. I mean, we quite regularly host, and this has been going on since the very beginning. You can imagine in the in the 1950s getting a delegation of, you know, art patrons or other artists up there. It wouldn't have been a commercial thing. You would probably have to take military flights to get up there and it was, you know, highly scheduled and and, and very expensive. It's still quite expensive, but yes, you can get up there on a commercial flight. So we do bring delegations. I mean, sometimes it's a group from the power plant in downtown Toronto, a contemporary art center. And the most recent visit was, I guess, before 2019, you know, before we had our pandemic adventures. And it was the Partners in Art group, which is a patron group here again in Toronto. But we've we've hosted delegations from Europe. We've hosted delegations from the United States. Uh, and, and, you know, I think it, it adds to the understanding and the appreciation of the work, even though you might be looking at a print that is of an owl, very conventional, typical, you know, Inuit expression that looks like it like in your work historically but when you're indoors and you see how these things are produced when you see how the studios function when you see how much of an effort it is to do anything in the arctic it does certainly contribute to the importance of that work and and the other side of it is when we when we bring our artists into the world i mean what we're doing when we bring our artists to other places and that again can be you know in canada a lot of the time the united states certainly and to europe i've traveled 
with artists all over the place. And of course, it's because you know, the collectors and the museums and the public want to meet artists and they want to hear about how they make their work and about their practice, those kinds of things. But I think behind that, we're always looking for an opportunity, a professional development opportunity for our artists. So when we bring an artist to New York, what do we want them to do? We want them to experience the city. We want them to even reflect perhaps that experience in their work. But more importantly, we want them to go back to Cape Dorset and to Kinney and to share that experience with their colleagues and, and with the community. Because you can imagine it's about $3,000 for a flight mm -hmm. from Toronto to Kinnite. And you can imagine it's prohibitive for all of us down here to get up there. It's equally as prohibitive, if not more, for a lot of residents and, and people who live in those settlements in the Arctic to get elsewhere in the world. So the importance of being able to share that experience with the community is something that we take very, very seriously and our artists take it very seriously. How has COVID affected that relationship? I mean, you mentioned you haven't been up there as much lately. You know, the interesting thing, this is this has been really, really trying for me because, I mean, if you can imagine, first of all, you know, I would go up there so that I could be in the studio and I could experience what artists are doing and I could hear about the challenges that they have and some of the new projects that they're working on and how can I best assist in making sure that they're well and that they've got the things that they need. You know, so, so that's, you know, fundamentally why I would go up there is to stay connected. And so I guess people would think, well, if you can't go up there, why don't you just get them on the phone or on Zoom or on whatever? Well, you can imagine technology and connectivity in the Arctic is almost non-existent. You know, some of our artists don't have telephones. Some of our artists don't have cable television, you know, so you can imagine, I mean, and getting them into the studios, usually they're there and I have a connection to them. But with COVID, we had to have the same kind of protocols that everyone else did. And the studios were shut down for a period of time as a non-essential service, you know, even accessing the artists. And, and now it's been like all of us. We've been in this for months and months and months, and everything we've been doing has been disrupted. But, you know, quite fundamentally, my relationship with the artists and even my colleagues in the North has been disrupted by this. And, and, and that's tough because, again, when there's no alternative to, to just being there and engaging, that's how COVID has been really catastrophic for me. And do you know if the artists, I mean, if they don't have access to the studio facilities, are they still creating in their own home spaces or are you not sure? Well, you know, interestingly, the, the one a piece of activity that we maintained throughout COVID was a very, you know, socially distanced um, buying program. When I say buying program, I didn't get into how we work with our artists in terms of, you know, selling art and how they get paid, those kinds of things. Well, our artists come in on every Tuesday and Thursday and they'll sell their work to the cooperative. So the West Baffin Eskimo Cooperative buys not everything, but a lot of what the artists bring in. And we have we have a couple of buyers up there. One of our one is an arts professional and the other one is is a member of the community. And so, you know, they'll look at the work and they will determine which ones we want, and then the artists get paid up front. And then those artists will take that revenue and they will go and buy, you know, food and diapers and, and get their snow machine fixed and, and that kind of stuff. This is not, as, as many people know, if you know the contemporary art world, that's not how it works. I mean, a lot of artists will, you know, have a bunch of work, they bring it to a gallery, the gallery will, will exhibit it, everyone will keep their fingers crossed, whatever sells, the artist will get a portion of that. But the whole, again, I mentioned this earlier, the whole reason that we exist is to create economy in the Arctic in that particular region and it would make absolutely no sense if the artist produced a bunch of work gave it to us and then a few months later we gave them some money you know the idea is that we create economy that we keep them well and that they've got you know the kind of resources financial resources they need in order to do the stuff that they need to do and so yeah the covid thing they continued to work the artists were 
always working. I mean, it was probably a bit more arduous for some of them who live in with multiple people in their houses or apartments, you know, and I think that the work continued to happen. Was it as big or as ambitious as it could have been if the studios were fully functioning and they had the space to work on that stuff? I would say probably not. But I mean, yeah, the artists are very dedicated to their practice. That's another thing that I've always found astonishing is how dedicated they are to their art making. Well, it's good that they're able to continue that and, you know, you're able to continue working with them in that capacity. It's important for artists. I think so, yeah. And you are also very active within the Toronto arts community. Can we maybe talk Mm. a bit about your involvement with 401 Richmond? Yeah, it's it's interesting because, I mean, they they are sort of mutually exclusive, but in a way they're still connected because I do try to bring, you know, and it's my job to bring Inuit art to the world, various places, circumstances, some expected, some unusual. And my relationship with 401 Richmond Street has been long, long before I got involved in Inuit art. So longstanding since the since the mid 90s, when I was director of a place called A Space Gallery, which is an artist run center. It's been around for I think it's been I'm 50. So it's been around 50 years. It was founded the year of my birthday. This place, I I became director when I was quite young and and got a phone call from Margie Zeidler, who is part of the Zeidler family and the owner of this 250,000 square foot complex at the corner of Richmond and Spadina at 401 Richmond Street. The name of the building is also the address of the building, which is convenient. And anyhow, she called and asked if I would be interested in relocating the gallery. We were located, I think, at, at 183 Bathurst Street at the time to this new place called 401 Richmond. Well, nobody knew what 401 Richmond was because it didn't exist up until now. And we also couldn't even envision the address because it was just a hole in the map of Toronto, unlike now, uh, where that building has been responsible for a lot of the energy around gentrification in that area. So a group of us moved into this building in 1995, I believe, and had no idea that we were going to become the first cohort of what was to be a legendary cultural center in, in Toronto and globally. And so I was there for a handful of years at A Space and formed lots of really meaningful relationships at the building. And since that, have been involved in, you know, I, I introduce people to the building through walking tours as my volunteer initiatives. I'm also what they call the curator of special projects. And so I'm involved with New Blanche in terms of programming in the building. When Nuit Blanche is a normal Nuit Blanche, we have about 10,000 people come through that building over the course of 12 hours. And, you know, just to characterize the building, it's really quite, it's four floors. It's a low rise. It's a former. They would um, do industrial lithography onto cans. So tins of cookies and tins of gopher poison and tins of motor oil would have these beautiful, beautiful mechanically reproduced lithographic images on the exterior. And there were artisans that worked to make those designs. And so the building, even though it was industrial, it still had a connection to creativity. And so Fast forward to the 90s when the building was purchased by the Zeidlers, the idea was that they would turn it into a mixed-use cultural hub and that not only would it have not-for-profit organizations involved with the arts, but it would also reach out to organizations not-for-profit as well, but in social welfare, in social justice, in the ecology and the environment, design and architecture. And on top of that, would also then look at some interesting for-profit organizations that had a similar philosophy to 401 as, again, this mixed-use, you know, 
Good Samaritan building that was that was helping to create Toronto through arts and culture, through good urban planning, all that kind of stuff. And on the first floor of the building, it was a lot of forward front fronted gallery spaces, essentially. So public spaces. You can go in and it's open, I guess, Monday to Saturday. And you can see a lot of art. There's lots and lots of stuff to do just on that main floor of the building. But as you then ascend to the second, third and fourth floors, things get a lot more private. And suddenly you see that there's these amazing creative offices. And I have the luxury of kind of going through the building and being able to knock on doors and see what people are up to. The general public, not so much, which is why these tours are so important because you start to realize not only do you have artists making work in that space, then those artists go to, say, a video distribution center like V-Tape to have their video in distribution. Then V-Tape will work with a, a, a festival, a film festival in the building and get their work into the film festival. So you can see that it's a really healthy closed circuit. But you can, you know, you can see all kinds of, of things happening in that ecology where it's back and forth with creativity and ideas and those kinds of things. So for me, it's been an important, I mean, in general, I, I feel it's such an important part of the Toronto, the Canadian and the international kind of cultural scene. And then it also keeps me connected to a much broader discussion around contemporary thinking, around contemporary creativity and culture. Um, and as I said, I'm able to, to program exhibitions of the artists I work with in Cape Dorset right in downtown Toronto. It's an interesting space. I have to say, I had the honor of doing one of those tours with you a number of years mm. ago. That's and, right. That's right. Yeah. And I remember we went up onto even their rooftop space, which is a living green roof, which is incredible. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Lisa, because it, it's probably one of the highlights of the building. And, and I think it's sort of my shtick now. Every tour, even in the winter, you know, we end up on the rooftop because a, it's a beautiful view of the city, but it also you know, gives you this true sense of not only is this a, a downtown urban space, but it's also kind of an oasis, a green oasis, particularly in the summer months. You know, obviously, when you can go and pick a couple of cherries and, you know, have a tomato and get some basil and sit and have a meeting in this amazing environment. Yeah, that's amazing. I would yeah. love a space like that, actually. You know, I think that's what a lot of what initiatives like that should be doing, really, is inspiring people. Every time I'm in that building, I, I imagine, and I'm connected to it, so I don't think about recreating it, but it's amazing when I have those those interactions with people. And, you know, they come from all over the world, and I'm taking them through this place, and they're like, we want to take these ideas back to whether it's Paris or London or Hong Kong, you know, and I think that's one of the, the most important parts of the 401 model. It's definitely that community. You can sense that anytime you go in there. If, if anybody hasn't been to 401 Richmond, they definitely should head down there mm -hmm. in the building because there's so much to see and so many interesting people to meet. It's sure. true. And, and actually, and Lisa, I'll share this with you once it's around, but I think you want to be interested to know, we partnered with the University of Toronto to conduct a research study on the history and impact of 401 Richmond Street. And so I had two young and very, very smart research residents from the University of Toronto. One was looking at urban planning as a career, the other one, I think, visual arts. And I was astonished, you know, when you have young emerging voices and new eyes on these things, it really changed the time that they were working with me at 401, well, virtually at 401. And, and you know, what will come out of this is a website, a living, breathing kind of website. I say living, breathing because it will constantly evolve. And the idea is that it'll be based on a timeline. It will have, it'll be media rich and that you'll be able to hear interviews. So in their own words, you know, how residents appreciate the building that they're in and how it's benefited them as either individuals or organizations. So that that's coming down the pipe. And I'm very excited about that. Yeah, that sounds exciting. I know I've met a lot of artists through different openings there, and I've gone through open studios with you. Maybe talk a little bit about open studios. That's an interesting space as well. 
Yeah, it really is one of the places in the building that that's a highlight. And I think because it is so dynamic and multifaceted and, and it's also huge. I mean, you've seen it, Lisa, you know how big it is. You imagine how expensive it would be to rent and then operate something on that scale. And that's the important thing to know about 401 is that it is a below market rent is what they call it. And there was a big campaign a handful of years ago in order to change the tax zoning in the, I guess it's that property or that footprint in order to, I guess there's a, something called called best use or highest use or something like that. And so even though 401 is a four story low rise, the potential to build a 60 story high rise on that same footprint is there. And so they start to tax you based on what you could be as opposed to what you are. So 401 worked really hard. I contributed you know, a little bit to that campaign. And so it, it does provide spaces like Open Studio that have a very large square footage requirement, the ability to rent because it's not what you would pay if you were renting on Queen Street West or in another commercial facility that wasn't as civic-minded as 401. But Open Studio is an interesting facility because you know there's the, the public space, which is exhibition and retail and then when you go through this magic door into the back it opens up into i think the behind the scenes is probably three to four times the size of the public space so often the public doesn't even know that this massive studio exists on the other side of the wall and i mean i don't know how many artists they have at any given time but when the studios are up and running and when these restrictions aren't around you know you can see all kinds of artists working in making prints in screen print because open studio is a printmaking facility in etching in letterpress in lithography in line of cut you know all of the all of the techniques are you're accessible in terms of the equipment that open studio Studio offers to its printmakers. And, and when you ask printmakers why Open Studio is important, you know, A, a lot of this equipment is so prohibitively expensive and is, you know, unusually large that, you know, if you're working in any particular scale or and with a complicated technique, you can't do it at home. And so, of course, access to the equipment is such an important part of what they provide, but also the fact that it's a shared studio space just the camaraderie that exists. And you can see it where artists are looking at each other's work and they're they're helping each other resolve issues in by technique or providing input into content, all that kind of stuff. So you understand that those things can't happen in an environment that, that doesn't foster, you know, the kind of scale and, and access to equipment that Open Studio has. Yeah, I like that you called it a magic door because it really is like walking into another world. And I'm not a printmaker, but have taught very basic printmaking techniques. And it's kind of like your romantic notion of what a print studio should be. These big mm-hmm. high things, the old building, all these presses. It makes me want to be a printmaker, actually, when I walk well. in there. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's interesting because if you look at their board of directors, for instance, it, it's a lot of people who just aren't printmakers, but who have been inspired by this place, you know, because it's a really interesting model and a lot of really exciting things happen there. So people are attracted to that. And and I would also say that a lot of the, because they do offer educational classes for the public and, you know, they're chock-a-block full of people that are just being introduced to printing. And I think that it's, I mean, it's fascination with the medium, but I would also say that it's because there's such a social aspect to, to open studio. And so that certainly there's a huge value in the way that that can bring people together and interest people in trying new things. That's really the sense I get from 401 Richmond as a building as a whole. So they're really fostering that kind of community. 
Mm-hmm. And it, Open Studio has existed in other places in the city in its history, you know, but I, I can't imagine it being anywhere else but 401 because mm-hmm. it's such an important part of that overall venue as one of the centers and having other colleague centers that do all kinds of different things. And by virtue of the fact that, you know, I think 401 would kind of be, uh, you know, a lesser place without Open Studio. So it's a really interesting and dynamic relationship between what is 401 Richmond Street and, you know, it's a tenant like Open studio. Mm-hmm. William, from knowing you, you've traveled a lot too with the arts and gone to interesting places. Can you talk about the Venice Biennale and what it's like and what Canada's relation is to that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've been fortunate with my opportunities to travel. I mean, some some have been a little bit more luxurious than others. A lot of the time I'm couch surfing at friends' places and eating through my aeroplan points. But, you know, it, it's such an important part of understanding what's happening in the world. And then, you know, and when I say that, I mean, understanding what's happening in the world so that we as Canadians, whether, you know, like me, an administrator, marketer, promoter, those kinds of things, or as creators, you, Lisa, as an artist, you know, knowing what those opportunities are, and you kind of have to be out there to figure it out. I mean, yes, there is the internet, you can Google things, certainly. But a place like the Venice Biennale, it's interesting because the format is that, you know, there are lots of these pavilions in a garden, the Giardini, which is garden in Italian, you know, so a lot of the bigger countries like Canada, Germany, Switzerland, you know, so on and so on, have these permanent structures in this garden. And what they do every two years, because uh, it is every two years that this event happens, the biennial, and, and they send what is supposed to be their best or brightest artists to represent the country. And then what happens beyond the national representations is that the the organizers, the Italian organizers of the Biennale, they hire an artistic director who then curates the, the Italian pavilion. So the Italian often has international artists and not just Italians, whereas the other national pavilions, generally, it's someone from that country because they're, they're promoting what goes on in that country. But there's also something called the Arsenale, and uh, it's an old, I guess, a shipbuilding for warships, actually, in, in the early days of Venice when it was a place where they at the Italian military, but um, massive, massive, massive facility. And it's just a sprawling, endless international exhibition. And so the curator, the artistic director, will just go all over the world and look and see what's happening and then bring those things back to Venice. And so it, it becomes this massive, massive undertaking, the official programming of the Biennale. And then the city is activated by all kinds of artists that just descend on Venice, particularly for the first, the, the preview days, as they call them. And, you know, they will they will create independent projects. There will be, you know, something that happens in a chapel and then something that just happens as an ad hoc in the middle of the street or, you know, a boat will go by that has some performance happening on it. So you know, it, they call it the Olympics of the art world. And I, I would say that it's in it, hundreds of thousands of people, you know, visit in the first few days of this thing. Like it, it's just packed and it's probably one of best places to go. I mean, on the one hand, it is you can see a lot of really interesting art and you get a crash course in what's happening in the Internet national contemporary visual arts scene but it's also probably one of the most useful places for me to structure my meetings because i have colleagues all over the world that i would only up until very recently it was it was only on the phone now of course you know we've all become used to zooming and, and, and video conferencing but you know there's again nothing like that face-to-face and personal so when venice was happening and i mean it was delayed by i think two years with our again, COVID adventures. But you know, it was a place where I could see friends and colleagues from around the world all in one place over a very short period of time. And so again, you use those platforms in order to get a better understanding of what's going on in the world and to build opportunities. And I can tell you the number of times that I've been able to 
you know, seal the deal on an exhibition or, you know, get somebody interested in coming to Canada to see more work being created here. I mean, so these are really important platforms for, for those things to happen I, I get, in addition to the purpose of looking at art. So I think that they're really super useful. And I would suggest any, particularly young people, if there's the opportunity to visit something like the Venice Biennale and there are other, other things that go on, the Whitney Biennial in New York, which is closer for Canadians. But nonetheless, these are, I think, important places to go because you can begin to network if you're emerging in the in art world. You can begin to understand, you know, what the international community is all about. And those are important experiences, particularly, again, for emerging. But at my stage in my career, it's invaluable for you to be in those places because there's high visibility and the opportunity for me to, again, connect to all of those contacts internationally and to further explore what those opportunities are for, for Canadian artists, or in my case now, Inuit artists or those kinds of things. I have to say Venice would be a nice backdrop for an office space. Well, th- this is it. I mean, when you go have a, a coffee at Piazza San Marco, you know, at the Cafe Florian, and I mean, you're just thinking, this is magical, you know, and I think that contributes to the energy and the excitement around. My first visit to Venice, I, it was unbelievable because, you know, I was there for the press days and then the opening day, I was there for the preview days, press days, and the first day of the public opening it was pat it was like a rock concert and people were dressed like in their gucci you know you know stilettos and just unbelievable that this was for me unbelievable this was linked to the visual arts and not something you know far more mainstream but it also shows you how important the visual arts is internationally and sometimes we don't see it here because you know as a relatively new country you know, we're not Europe, where we don't have that depth of history that as related to arts and culture. But you're reminded, you know, how international the visual arts is and how a place like Venice can bring all of that together. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. It's really important for us to travel and see these things and also to be able to see what's happening internationally, I think is as important for an artist as what's happening locally. Well, yeah, totally. And I think, I think you know, even Venice is ambitious because it's Europe. And I'm well aware that there are lots of people that don't have the opportunity to travel because it is prohibitive and expensive and people have other priorities. You know, but even moving around to places, whether whether they're inside Canada, it's always important for me to know what's going on in, in Montreal and know what's going on in Vancouver. And, you know, and that becomes an important part of understanding how diverse the country is in mm-hmm. terms of, of cultural expression in all kinds of media. But, you know, it, it's something as a simple trip to New York occasionally. I mean, the thing about New York City, and as much as it can drive me to madness because it is so big, so, you know, ominous sometimes, I mean, it is also just, it's so huge. And, you know, for every one commercial gallery, let's say we have here in Canada, there are 10 in the United States, if not more. And so a trip to Chelsea will give you uh, an introduction to every single important artist working in the world today and an understanding of how serious and how profitable the visual arts can be in terms of, of buying and selling. And that's something that you that you can't often see here because we're, you know, it's a, we're a much smaller country, you know, at 25 million, 35 million. And the market here just doesn't exist in the same way that it does in the United States. So even those, you know, more, they're more closer a field of visits to places within Canada and New York or Los Angeles, for that matter. You know, these are, I think, important places to go to get a a better understanding of what's happening around you. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you've explored the world through this lens of arts administration. When you set out to be in the arts, was that your goal? Did you think you'd be in arts administration or did you have another vision? And how did you get to where you are? 
Well, if that's a good point, actually. And I mean, I don't when I was young and actually I was enrolled in, I guess, what it would have been called a pre-med stream at University of Toronto, if you can imagine. So I, I wasn't even on the cusp of, of my university you know, career. I wasn't even intending to go into the arts, uh, visual arts and very close to I think it was it may have been even. I can't remember how many days before, uh, you know, the school was to start, I switched over to the Art and Art History Program at University of Toronto and, and Sheridan College, the UTM, University of Toronto Saga, and Sheridan in Oakville. And that was, and, and I had, you know, I had a modicum experience in, in making things. I've been creative, but of course, it was all, always got misread as, oh, you're creative, you should be a heart surgeon. Um, so, you know, so there's such a strange trajectory. And, and when I first started, you know, seriously making work at the studios at Sheridan, of course, I wanted to be an artist, you know, and I, I really, this is amazing. I get to, I get to explore all of the things that I'm interested in, in a completely and totally different way. Like suddenly I got to think about things critically. I got to, you know, look at things more seriously or through different lens. So I would make you know, installation and sculpture was my thing and some video and some performance work. And after that, I realized, I thought, oh, you know, I'll I'll go to move to Toronto after I've got my degree. And well, I realized everybody wants to be an artist. And there are so many, particularly downtown Toronto, where you have OCAD U, which is such a large institution. It always has been. It's much bigger now. And so I began to question, you know, do we need another artist or do we need somebody who understands the vocabulary? of art making, of studio practice, but also has an ability to talk about it in a way that's compelling to the public. Essentially, it was me not understanding what marketing and PR is all about at the time, but thinking I was inventing something that was essentially marketing and PR. And so I moved into administration in order to kind of do that, where I would engage artists in, in a different way. So I stopped making art, which I'm not unhappy about at all, because again, I, I know I know the kind of art that I make and I see some of the artists I work with and you know I was by comparison a terrible artist. So this is this is just perfectly fine. But you no, know, it was interesting and, and I really I started working with you know both voluntarily and through my jobs and I've been very fortunate to have a succession of what I think are interesting job opportunities. And you know just being able to engage with artists to understand what they're doing to then interface what they want to say in a way that a broader public will understand. And, and you know, I mean, it, it, it really is about storytelling. And, you know, and, and in some respects, I'm a pretty good storyteller. And so it became, I started to see my strengths in relationship to creative practices and how I could contribute to, you know, the, the cultural milieu overall by being able to work in that way with, with creators or institutions or, you know, any, any circumstance that requires a link to the public and is dependent on perhaps audience maybe is the way to describe it. And so that, that's how I kind of fell into this whole, you know, business of arts administration. And of course, I, I worked for a bit of time in, in the public sector, uh, public service at the Toronto Arts Council and the Canada Council. And uh, that was, you know, giving artists and organizations money in order to do what they're doing. And, and that really gave me a, a really, really important, vital understanding of how things work behind the scenes and, and how, you know, an organization like the Canada Council, the Toronto Arts Council can best assist with financial resources. And, you know, I took all of that experience and all of that understanding and I brought it to the Inuit art world. And, and, you know, this has been and has the potential to be a niche territory, you know, where suddenly you have, you know, these artists that are from the Canadian Arctic making this very specific kind of work in a very specific way. I mean, it's, it's stone sculpture, it's drawings and it's prints. And how could I then bring 
I guess that broader understanding to the Inuit art milieu. And it's been really fascinating taking my network of friends and colleagues and even particularly artists and introducing them to Inuit art. And, and much like me, when I first started, I was familiar with, you know, some of Kanoyuak's more iconic pieces, but did I have any nuanced understanding or an intimate understanding of how this all worked? No. And, you know, I become so compelled by it in the time that I've been doing this. And I, I'm seeing it happen with those that I've introduced, you know, whether they're contemporary art collectors, whether they're contemporary art curators. I mean, suddenly they're compelled by this story about Inuit art. So, you know, I think in a way I, I, I'm kind of doing a good job <laughs> telling that story of Inuit art. It's come full circle for you then, everything you've learned. Sort of boy, oh boy, I think it, it has in a way that I would never have suspected, you know. As we wrap up, I always ask my guests to give us one book that they think every artist should read. What would you recommend? Oh, my gosh. You know what? You did tell me you were going to ask me this question, and I, I should have prepared. But if I have to, off the top of my head, I would say anything by David Sedaris. I don't know if he's a, a humorist. And what I find remarkable, they are so absurd. They are so, you know, sort of unbelievable. It, it's all, it's fiction. You know, it's humor fiction. And some of them are very dark. Some of them are very um, perverse. Some of them are very, you know, just comical. And what I really appreciate about that is, you know, this is, this is as much as, you know, if the art world can be, you know, cocktail parties and all kinds of other luxurious travel, you know, that we talked about. It's a really serious thing. It's a really, it can be a very serious thing. And so for me, I kind of, A, like the departure of reading David Sedaris and understand, just being able to have a bit of a respite from all of this stuff. And particularly now with my, with my Inuit connection, it can be quite, can be, again, very serious job. So for me, I do like to take the, those opportunities to kind of just, just uh, phase out a little bit and just enjoy David's, uh, a strange sense of humor. That's great. Thank you. I will have to check out some of his work. I haven't read anything by him, so I'll be expanding my reading list as we go through this. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, William. I've really appreciated your time, and it's very insightful. You've given us lots to think about and to look into. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, I would say always a pleasure to talk to you, Lisa, as well. And, you know, I really appreciate that we've maintained our friendship over a long period of time. And this latest initiative, I'm thrilled to have been uh, invited to participate. And have a good day. You too. Thank you for tuning in to Art Conversations with Lisa Jane Irvine. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and hit the like button. And don't forget to check out my website, Facebook, and Instagram accounts. Thank you for listening. See you next time.